All right, well, welcome again. And if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Psalms. We'll be in Psalm chapter 63 today. Psalm 63. And if you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to follow along with us, there are some black Bibles scattered around under the chairs, and uh, it, it should be on page 479. Page 479, you'll find Psalm 63. The series we've called Collide, and the idea is that in the Psalms, we have this model both of corporate worship, but also of private prayer and uh, encouraging relationships in a small group level. All of these different levels, we have the same model of bringing our emotions into collision with God's truth. So living a very real, honest life with God, being real with God, being able to talk to God about what's going on in our life, but also being able to speak God's word back to him. So we see that modeled really beautifully in the Psalms. And today, the sermon is called Thirst for God. Uh, we go a lot of different directions to satisfy this gnawing thirst that we have in our heart. Uh, Pascal said that we have a God-shaped vacuum in our heart, right, that can only be filled with God himself. And Augustine is famous for saying uh, to God, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you, O oh God. And so this is lived out for us in Psalm 63. If you look at Psalm 63, uh, the superscription says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So this was a desert. This was a wilderness where there was not much water. So that's the setting. And there's only two stories uh, from First and Second Samuel where we see David in this desert of Judah. Uh, the only two stories we're aware of, now it could have been another circumstance because we don't have every detail here, uh, but it says he's in the desert of Judah. Once he was in the desert of Judah being chased by King Saul, uh, the king before him, who wanted to kill him. The second time we know about him being in the king of Judah or in the desert of Judah was when his son Absalom was chasing him and wanted to take over his king and wanted to kill him. So both of those situations were bad situations, right? So he's in a desert. Uh, someone wants to kill him, most likely. And what he does is he takes this pain point as an opportunity to recognize his thirst is really for God, right? He's thirsty, he's about to die maybe, but ultimately it's about God. It's not about the immediate circumstances and that's where David takes us. So let's, let's follow with him. Verse one says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let me pray and ask God to teach us. God, we ask for your help this morning. Uh, you know that we need you. Uh, we may not know it yet, but we pray that you'd help us to see, help us to thirst for you, help us to take 
uh, whatever temporary thirsts that we feel this morning and to focus those and to use those as opportunities to see that really you're the only one that can satisfy us. I pray for those this morning that are struggling with other wells, with other sources of satisfaction. I pray, God, that you would help all of us to repent, to turn from those things that can't really satisfy us because you're so good. God, help your kindness to lead us to repentance this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my wife and I, uh, we got married pretty young, and we were in college together for part of that time. My wife was taking this great class called Sociology of Nutrition. You remember Sociology of Nutrition? And I remember her telling me about some just whacked out crazy stories she was hearing in this class, right? Some really strange disorders that people had when it came to nutrition, and one in particular was called pica. Have you ever heard of pica? Um, pica is a very interesting disorder, and what it is basically is, is when you start craving stuff that's not food, right? You have a desire to eat something that you should not be eating. Um, and so I think sometimes, I, don't, I didn't take the class, but sometimes uh, I think it could just be plain craziness, but other times there can actually be a nutritional deficiency, right? You're longing for something that's found in this strange other item, you know, and so your body somehow senses that, I think, sometimes. And so, like, you may have an iron deficiency, and you may have a desire to eat red clay, right? Because there's iron in there, um, even though it's not really a good thing to eat. I don't recommend eating that. Um, there's also a really weird story we heard was people eating laundry detergent, right? Laundry detergent. I don't know what kind of vitamin is in laundry detergent, but again, do not eat your laundry detergent, okay? Um, and, and this is this reality that works out in our life of us uh, longing for something, wanting to satisfy this hunger in us, this thirst in us in the wrong way. And that is a universal uh, human reality that we go to the wrong places to satisfy that gnawing inside. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless, God, until we find our rest in you. And we need to understand that reality that God is calling to us to satisfy ourselves in him. Often we think that God is calling on us to go satisfy ourselves and get our stuff together and then come to him all satisfied. That's not it. God is saying, recognize that your problem is you don't have me. You need me. And so God is calling us to satisfy ourselves in him. Uh, that, that theme is the theme of this whole uh, chapter, Psalm 63. If you look at the first verse, this longing, this thirsting for God, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So again, remember, we think the setting might be someone's trying to kill David. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just he's in a wilderness where he's dying of thirst. Either way, it might be both. Either way, a pain point is driving David to recognize that this this temporary problem I have is nothing compared to this eternal problem I have of really needing to thirst for God. God is really the issue here. And so what I want to lead you towards and what I think the text will lead us towards this morning is recognizing whatever pain point we're going through right now, that really that helps us to see that God is our real need. And I understand that I I haven't walked in your shoes, right? So I don't want to belittle the pain that you're going through. I don't want to belittle whatever struggle you're in right now. But I know in a congregation this size, there's a lot of different struggles. There's a lot of different things that are hurting us, that are making us tired, that are making us feel like we're, we're thirsting, that we can't be satisfied. And I want to encourage you that God uh, wants you to see those pain points as opportunities to recognize that he's the real satisfier of your thirst. 
He's the real issue. And so long for him, satisfy yourself in him, thirst for God, and then you will truly be satisfied. It's a theme we see throughout the scriptures. The first way that David uh, understands that that thirst is satisfied is in public worship. And this makes sense because David is a worship leader, right? So that would be the first thing that comes to his mind. There's other places that we'll get to as we move through the psalm. There's other ways that you can satisfy your thirst. So I just want to be clear up front, public worship is not the only way that you can find God. The scripture is very clear about that. We can find God in multiple ways. But that's the first place David goes. The first place David goes is that he was thirsting for God and he can find God in public worship. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, it says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. So that's the uh, sanctuary. It's the holy place. Uh, when we say something is sanctified, we really mean it's set aside for God's purposes. right? It is holy or devoted to Him. right? So that doesn't necessarily mean a place is magical, but that means it's been set aside. It's been devoted. So he's saying, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. This in his day would have been this tabernacle that they had constructed according to the instructions in Exodus in the Old Testament. They built this whole place as a place for God to come down and meet with his people. He says, I've seen you there, beholding your power and your glory. David says, I've beheld your power and your glory in the sanctuary, in the space that you set aside for that. Because, why? Because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. So he's saying, because of your steadfast love, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to lift up my hands, not because the person next to me is lifting up my hands, but because your love is better than life. I'll, I'll say things about you, not because that's the social construct that I live in, but that your grace is so good, I want to, I want to say something about it. I want to reflect that. I want to sing to you. So he says, I've seen you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. I want us to think for a moment about how they worshiped God in the sanctuary, right? So uh, the sanctuary, we we might say the holy place, say uh, at one time it was the tabernacle, which was movable. It was still an awesome uh, awesome structure. It had columns and it had these heavy tapestry curtains. And so it it was pretty intense. Tent doesn't really do it justice. We often read tent as a translation, but tent, you know, we think of like a little nylon thing with a sleeping bag. That, that's really not what it was, right? It was, it was a substantial place that they had built with gold and with fine tapestries and heavy curtains and all this stuff where they would meet God. And everything about this, and then later it became a, a permanent temple with stones, right? Solomon built it into stones later on and made it, you know, more of a permanent structure. Um, but everything about it was designed so that they could meet God there. And God had very specific instructions. He wanted them to understand a few very important things. One thing was that he was absolutely holy. He was absolutely holy, that God is just, God is righteous, God is perfect. He wants us to get that. God is absolutely other and he's distant from us in his perfection and his holiness. And we need to understand that, that we are sinners before God that we fail. We don't love each other like we should love each other. We don't make the kind of right decisions we should make. And so before God, we're sinners. And so the temple or the sanctuary would communicate that to them, the way that they would worship. They would see God's otherness, his specialness, his holiness. They also would have sacrifices there. So basically, they would have innocent lives shed uh, to take away their sins. And so what he was teaching them is that a sacrifice needed to be made for their sins. And Hebrews makes it real clear that these were just shadows. These were just pointers to the real sacrifice to come 
of Jesus. And so they had this understanding that God, the God of the universe, is absolutely other. He's absolutely perfect. He's absolutely holy, but he comes down to meet with us. And he invites us into his presence. And he says, a sacrifice needs to be made so that you can be forgiven, so you can be cleansed from your sin, and you can come into my presence. So some very key things that were communicated there in their uh, worship. And David says, in all of that, I beheld your power and your glory. I beheld your power and your glory. I, I saw you. I saw you in that worship. And that is our desire here as well. As we gather to worship, we're not doing it according to the Exodus and Levitical instructions in the Old Testament, because Hebrews says all of that is now fulfilled in Jesus. And so the same principles are at play, uh, but the culture has changed. It's now translated into every culture all over the world, right? And so there's different styles. We have different styles of music. We have different preferences, but the principles are the same. Paul talks about this in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, Paul says, who has bewitched you, right? He's talking to these people that are being led away to something other than Jesus being their way to meet God. And he says, who has bewitched you? Jesus Christ was portrayed, publicly portrayed before you as crucified. Publicly portrayed. He's not talking about people actually being there as eyewitnesses. They didn't see him uh, crucified. And he's not talking about a video projector. They didn't have video projectors back then. He wasn't even talking about a puppet show or a skit, right? He was talking about the preaching of the cross. He says, when the cross is proclaimed, you have vividly seen Jesus. You've seen him. You've beheld his power and his glory. When you understand that God is holy and you're separated from him by your sin, but that God came to you in the flesh as Jesus and he lived this perfect life you couldn't live and he took your sins upon himself on the cross. He died to take your place. He takes away your sin. He gives you his righteousness. When you understand that, when you've heard that, you've seen God. Do you understand that? When you have ears to hear, as Jesus would say, then you've seen him. Then you've beheld God's power and glory. Then you've really seen him. And so I want to encourage you to remember that that is ultimately what we're about. The style and the culture is secondary, right? In the tabernacle, they had big columns and they had these beautiful tapestries and they had all this stuff. We, we don't have that here but we still get to behold God's power and glory. We have a different sanctuary. We still get to behold his power and his glory through the preaching of the cross. And so we get to see the same God that David got to see, this God that wanted to be with his people, that comes after his people, that adopts a people to be his own, that saves a people to be his own. We get to know that same God, even though we're, we're not of the same race, we're not of the same time, we're not of the same place. We live in a different place, right? But he gathers us together. And he says, you're mine. You are my children. Not because of, of where you lived, not because of the time you lived or the neighborhood you lived in, but because of what I've done. And so we get to behold God's power and glory through the cross. We get to be a part of his family through the cross, adopted into his love. And I think one of the reasons that we have a hard time beholding God's power and glory in public worship is because we've become so individualized. We are so focused on our own preferences more now than any other time in human history. More than any other time in human history. If, if you study history at all, you know that we live like great emperors did 2,000 years ago. Every single one of us. The poorest person in this room, you are way wealthier than anybody 2,000 years ago. And so we have all this control over our life of getting to control the content that we uh, immerse ourselves in and what we do and who we hang out with and what we listen to and how we live our life. And we have all this control and we, 
we think in a lot of ways that that's good because we've been raised to think that since we were little kids to make all these choices. So that makes it hard for us to then gather as a unified people because we have all these different preferences. I have a picture here to, to kind of get across the, the concept of a guy listening to headphones. Um, how many of you own any kind of music listening device? Raise your hand if you own anything. Okay, most people in here. How many of you own headphones? Anybody own headphones? Okay, yeah, that's pretty normal. If I had asked that question 2,000 years ago, how many of you would have said yes? None, right? We all have these different tastes, these different flavors, and so we all want to be listening to our own stuff. I do this a lot. I've actually gotten convicted lately that, man, I need to listen to the birds chirp some more when I'm out running or walking the dogs. I'm always listening to something. I've always got the headphones on. Uh, whenever I've got this time by myself, and sometimes it's good holy things. I'm listening to sermons and stuff. I, I do that too, but even then, it's always my choice, right? Sometimes I think it's good for us to, to have the choices of others thrust upon us. And so there's something unifying about gathering together as one people in corporate worship saying, we're going to worship God. We're going to behold God's power and glory, even though that might not be my favorite song. Even though I may not really get what Pastor Dave is saying, at least I heard that part about Jesus and I get that, right? And so we can be unified even though there's differences. Even though we grow up in different places, we come from different places, we like different things, we eat different foods, we prefer different styles of music. We can be unified because we behold God's power and glory, not through culture, but through the gospel. And, and distinguishing between those two things is very important. It's very important. Do we have culture here? Yeah. I mean, we have certain songs we do and songs we don't do. And, you know, pink carpet's really important to us here. And there's just cultural, cultural preferences that we have, right? There's just ways we do things. And I'm joking, some of them are accidental. The pink carpet's accidental. Some of them we choose, right? And some of them are accidents thrust upon us by circumstance. But we have this opportunity to be supernaturally united in the gospel. I can't tell you how fun it is to stand up here week after week and communicate the gospel to those of you out there and look at all your different faces, right? You're all different shapes and sizes and textures and colors. And that's God's pleasure, right? In Ephesians, it says his multicolored wisdom is revealed in the church. It's manifest in the church through us, our diversity, all our differentness. It all comes together in this pot of being united and seeing God's power and glory in the gospel. That's a great privilege we have. And so I would ask you to make it a discipline to work for that. Because we've got to work for it, right? It doesn't just happen. It's not easy because we, we, all, we all have different preferences. One of the things that Chris and I talk about sometimes, Chris, our worship leader, is that we feel like we must be doing something right as a church if we get complaints from every direction, Right? So like if people are always saying, I want it faster, I want it slower, I want it louder, I want it softer, I want it older, I want it newer, right? Um, Dave, you, you use too many Greek words. Dave, you don't use enough Greek words, right? I mean, you just get, that's the kind of feedback we get. So that makes me feel like, okay, we must be doing something right, right? If everybody's a little unhappy, then we're, you know, we're coming together <laughs> and we're compromising and we're trying to make it about the gospel, trying to make it about the gospel. So we behold his power and glory and who he is, this God that wants to meet with us. It's not about our favorite song. It's not about our favorite style. It's not even about it being, you know, always cool and comfortable in here. I'm sweating. I'm about to die right now. Um, But it's about meeting God. God wants to meet with you. And that's what corporate worship is about. In the Old Testament, thousands of years ago, and now in the 21st century, in this place, in this unique place that we live right now, it's about meeting God, beholding his power and glory 
through the gospel. God is this God that's coming after us, adopting us, making us his own. So application-wise, what does this look like in our life? We should thirst for God and we should see public worship as an opportunity to meet him. We should be hungry for him and we should see public worship as an opportunity to meet him. So make that a discipline, a desire. Pray for it. Say, God, I thirst for you. Help me to meet you in our gathered worship. Help me to see you. Help me to hear you. Help me to understand who you are. I want to see your power and your glory. God, you know uh, that quirk about how they do things there drives me crazy, but help me to see you and not the quirk, right? Help me to not be distracted by the, the external features, but help me to see you. And on the other side of that, I want to say it's okay uh, to go to a church where they do things more in line with what you like, right? It's okay to have preferences. It's not unholy to have preferences, right? There's just some music we like better than others. There's some styles we like better than others. There's, there's certain things and cultures, the way people do things that just help us, but make sure you're getting the gospel and not just your preferences, okay? Especially in a town like this where half of you are going to be gone in a couple of years, right? God's going to take you to another city. Make sure that wherever you go, you don't look for just your preferences. Make sure you look for the gospel. Make sure you behold God's power and glory wherever you go. And that can be in a lot of different flavors and a lot of different styles. Um, so the first thing is it's, it's about ultimately about God, beholding his power and glory. Also, it requires eyes of faith. You, you have to have faith. God, help me to see you. Help me to hear you. Help me have ears to hear. When you show up, I want to see you. I don't want to be distracted just by style and by flavor. Um, also, public worship is meant to engage the whole person with purposefully emotional language and deep theology. You know, I talked earlier about people complaining on both sides. Uh, we have emotional people that wish we were more emotional. And we have uh, rational people that wish we were, were more rational. And you see in the scriptures, those things always bonded together. They're not like separate things. And you go to the shelf and go, I want this cereal. I'll take rational. I'll take emotional, right? The scriptures bond those things together. Our emotions are driven by our theology our theology is often driven by our emotions. Those things are supposed to work together. They're supposed to work together. We are made to be a whole, and those things are supposed to live uh, together. Also, we see bodily response. Specifically here, he says, my lips will praise you. I'll bless you as long as you live, and in your name, I'll lift up my hands. Lifting up hands was a common form of prayer. That's how uh, a Jewish man would pray. He would lift up his hands to pray to God. Throughout the scriptures, we have many other bodily responses. I think the key, the most common one that we see in the scriptures is singing, right? So that's a challenge for some of you. Some of you are just not music people, and I would say it's a discipline. We are encouraged to sing to God. It's a discipline. Um, So I would say, I would encourage you to to do it trusting that God knows what he's saying when he asks us to do it, right? Trust that God knows what he's telling us when he asks us to respond bodily to him. The most common form is singing. There's lifting up your hands. There's bowing down, there's leaping for joy, there's clapping your hand. There's all kinds of bodily responses we see in the scriptures. And it goes uh, all the way down into James where it says, uh, true worship is caring for orphans and widows in their distress and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. So that is really our ultimate bodily response is to care for the weak physically and to stay pure physically. So, so there are bodily responses we're always called to. We're always called to respond to God. And public worship is a perfect opportunity for us to do that, to meet God as we gather with his people. The other place that we see God now is in private worship. This is a lot more familiar to us in our culture. We believe, I think, generally in our culture, more in uh, organic, disconnected, kind of everybody doing their own thing kind of worship, right? 
Like that's a lot more commonly loved and appreciated in our culture because we are this iPod culture. You know, we all got our earphones on. We're all doing our own thing. Um, and so we understand that you can meet God privately. And that's very clear in Scripture as well. You meet God publicly, but you also meet God privately. Look at verse 5. He says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So um, this, I would just tell you, insert your own fat, rich food of choice here when you hear that verse, right? That could be upsetting to you. So you, like, you might need to track with bacon, or it might be cheesecake, or whatever it might be. Um, I'm thinking bacon. I'm actually wearing my... I'm wearing one of my bacon shirts today, actually. It's an undershirt. Um, so I'm going to think bacon, right? But different people will track in different ways with that. Um, so my soul will be satisfied. My soul, so he, he's, he's making the jump from physical to spiritual, saying it's like, it's like eating bacon. It's like cheesecake, but it's my soul being satisfied with God. That's really where the satisfaction comes. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Again, that bodily response. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to say something about it. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So he says here very specifically, verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. The watches of the night, really, they just would divide the night up, right? David was a soldier, so he's saying, you know, they would have different duties throughout the night. So this is just a way to refer to the different sections of the night. Throughout those sections of the night, I'm going to think of you. I'm going to meditate on you, God. I'm going to remember you. I'll remember you upon my bed. So do you have times of private prayer? So not just corporate prayer where someone else is kind of leading you and showing you what to do. Do you have individual, private time of devotion and worship with God? Do you talk to Him? Do you, do you read His Word? Do you listen to Him? Are you still before Him? That's my question for us. I have a picture here of praying hands. Uh, Jesus, when he was talking about spirituality in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, he was talking about this thing that we can fall into where we pray to be seen. And he says, you should pray in secret with your heavenly Father. So when he was saying that, he wasn't forbidding all public prayer for all time. What he was forbidding was this heart that just wanted to be seen. He's saying, don't do it just to be seen by other people, but have a personal, deep relationship with your heavenly Father. Go into your secret place and talk to him. He wants to talk to you. He loves you. So this is another way that we behold God's power and glory. It's another way that we thirst for God is in private worship. What's really fascinating is Jesus had these habits of worship. I was just talking to somebody after the first service, and I didn't even mention this, so this is a bonus you get that the first service didn't get. But Jesus spent time in private worship, right? Read read through the Gospels all the time, all the time. Jesus was sneaking off from his disciples to go be alone with God, to go pray. And this is mind-blowing because Jesus was God, right? I mean, that's a pretty good example for us. If the perfect human lived his life never sinning, but in constant communion and fellowship with God and in private devotion with him, then maybe, maybe that would be good for us, right? Maybe we should do that too. So that's my question for you. Do do you do that? Is that a part of your life? Do you seek God in in private worship on your bed throughout the watches of the night? When I think of the watches of the night thing too, I I remember one of our elders years ago, who's not with us anymore, but when we first started the church, he said a lot of times he would just wake up in the middle of the night and he had determined that that was God telling him to pray. Whenever he couldn't sleep, that meant I'm supposed to pray. And so that's become a habit of my heart as well. When I can't sleep, which, you know, doesn't happen very often. I usually sleep pretty well. But if I do get woken up, that's, that's time for me to pray. That's time for me to be with God. 
Do you, do you read the Bible when you're by yourself? Do you take nature walks with your Bible or nature walks of prayer? Do you, do you get out and just spend time alone with God? Do you devote time in the morning or at night to read the scriptures for yourself? Um, do you use your iPod as a tool of prayer and worship, right? Do you listen to music that will help you to worship God or listening to the scriptures on your personal listening device or listening to sermons that help you to see Jesus and his glory revealed in the gospel? I would encourage you again to thirst for God and to meet him in those private times of worship and devotion. A great opportunity we have at our church is something that one of our elders, Loris Shepherd, leads once a month, the second Saturday of the month. So we just had it yesterday. It's a half day in prayer. This is a great opportunity. If you've never done anything like this, it sounds mind-boggling, right? Because you're thinking, half day in prayer, I can barely spend two minutes in prayer. So that's going to sound really hard, but it's a, it's a great experience. And they'll give you some guidelines and some scriptural ways to kind of lead you through that. Everybody gathers over at the Plaza del Sol. It's once a month, second Saturdays. It's like 8 to 11.45. So it's basically just your morning set aside for that. Um, and as I said, they'll kind of uh, lead you a little bit. They'll give you a handout and kind of help lead you in that. And then we separate. You'll separate out and spend time in prayer and then come back together and gather again at the end. But that, that's a practical way that, that you can be involved. Spend private time in worship, seeking God, um, finding Him in, in private worship. The last thing I want us to look at is future worship. And we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here. Um, he ends with this vision of judgment. He ends with a vision of judgment, and so keeping in line with the, with the uh, theme of worship, I think this is a, a way that we find God in worship as well, that we look forward to God making all things right, especially if you've been a victim of abuse uh, or oppression in any way, you recognize that there's a God that's going to someday make all things right. He, he will vanquish the wicked. Evil will be done with. Look at verse 9. He says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. As God's king, as the king of God's covenant people, there's a mingling here that's different for us in in the age we live in. So there's there's some cultural separation here, right? If I spoke this way about myself, you'd be a little worried about me being, you know, like megalomaniac, that kind of thing. Um, But in this day and time, David was his appointed representative, right? David was the king over this people whose job was to reveal God to the nations. That was their job. And so his uh, kingdom standing was in line with God's kingdom standing. Now we see that really clearly work itself out in Jesus as the ultimate king. Right, if you read this in line with Revelation, Jesus coming back on the white horse, then it makes more sense to us now in that light. Like, okay, I get that. The king is going to come back and all who swear by the king will exult, but the mouths of all the liars will be stopped. And we now, in, in our culture, in our time, we can make a lot more sense of this as we see it through the lens of David just being a shadow of King Jesus, but King Jesus being the real king that this is talking about. There's this future worship that will come. As it says in Philippians, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the direction we're heading in. We're heading in everything being made right. Everything's going to be okay. It's all going to get tied up, right? It's going to be a happy ending unless we're on the wrong side. I have a picture here of Arlington Cemetery, tombstones, because I want to lovingly remind you that we're all dying. 
I just want to lovingly remind you this morning, we're all dying. That's where we're all headed. I've told you all before, sometimes on birthday cards, if it's somebody I know well, I'll write on the birthday card, you're dying. We all are, right? It's just a way to, just a way to wish happy birthday. If I don't know you that well, I probably won't put that on your birthday card. Um, but it's just a good thing to remember. We're all dying. That's the direction we're headed. We're all just headed there at different speeds, right? We're all just dying at different speeds. I'm kind of beat up. I might die faster than you, but we're, we're all dying. We're all headed there. And we need to have that future in mind, the future worship where God ties everything up and the, and the here and now isn't everything. The here and now isn't everything. We should live in the here and now in a way that reflects our confidence in the future, which will be everything, right? So that drives how we live here and now. If you look at Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gives three parables about how we should live now expecting the king to return and make all things right. Talks about things like investing our talents with reckless abandon, spending what God has given us for his glory. It talks about uh, servants taking care of other servants, feeding those who are in need. It gives all these pictures of being ready to worship the king, having our, having our party supplies out with the parable of the, of the virgins waiting for the groom to return. So there's all these pictures that Jesus gives of we should be ready to celebrate him in the here and now. We should be serving each other in love in the here and now. We should be investing our talents in the here and now based on the return of our king. And that's what drives us to live differently now based on this future worship that's going to happen. There's a John Foreman song called Learning How to Die. It says, um, I said to her, please don't talk about the end. Don't talk about how every living thing goes away. But she said, friend, all along I thought I was learning how to take, learning how to bend and not how to break, learning how to live and not how to cry. But really I've been learning how to die. I've been learning how to die. I don't mean to drag you down with this reality, but it's precious to me because God used the reality of my own impending death to help me to meet Jesus. When I was 17, people dying helped me to wake up to the reality that I wanted to live my life differently. And so I hope that's helpful for you as well, and I think it will be because it's here in the Scripture. It's here in the Psalm. We're headed to a future where those who exult in the King will celebrate, those who swear by him will exult, and all liars will be shut up. All liars will be shut up. There, there is a final judgment coming. And God invites us to satisfy ourselves in him. It's not meant to terrify us. It's meant to drive us to him and his goodness and his grace, to satisfy ourselves in him. Jesus revealed himself this way to a woman at a well in John chapter 4. He met a woman at a well. He was thirsty. And he used that pain as an opportunity to communicate to her that there's a greater thirst and that the multiple husbands that she had and that the man that she was living with right now were just reflections of a deeper thirst that she had for God. It was her failing to live out the reality that Augustine talked about when Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. God calls us to satisfy our thirst in him. I want to encourage you to, to come to him. Use whatever pain point you're living through right now to drive you to recognize you have a deeper thirst. There's a deeper thirst that can't be satisfied with your job. It's a deeper thirst that can't be satisfied with a spouse. It can't be satisfied with a new spouse or another friend or another relationship or a, a better respect from your peers. But there's a satisfaction that can only be satisfied with God himself. There's that thirst that we can only find met in him. Let me pray for us.
God, we thank you that you love us and that you have given yourself to us in Jesus. We thank you for the way that you have wired that into our worship rhythms as we eat and drink to remember you, as we sing to celebrate your goodness to us, as we look at your word, as, as you teach us. We pray that all of these things would shape us, would, would form us into the image of your son. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are good to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.